The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts. Radio. News. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Hewitt podcast available every morning on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen. It's Tuesday the 13th of February and I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up today, Joe Biden says he's pushing for a six-week pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas. Chip designer arm stock rises by 29% in a single day and nearly doubles in less than a week. Plus, lacking a plan, we look at why Britain's chronic housing shortage is about to get even worse. Let's start with a roundup of our top stories. Negotiators from Israel, the United States, Egypt and Qatar are expected to resume talks in Cairo later to discuss a pause in fighting and the release of hostages being held by, in Gaza by Hamas. The discussions come as President Biden says he's pushing for a six-week pause in the conflict. The United States is working on a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas, which would bring an immediate and sustained period of calming to Gaza for at least six weeks, which we could then take the time to build something more enduring. Biden's comments were his most detailed yet about the ongoing negotiations between Israel and Hamas, which the US is helping to facilitate. On Monday, Israeli forces launched strikes on the city of Rafah in the southern Gaza Strip, where more than a million people have sought shelter from the fighting. Many refugees fled the north of the territory after Israel launched its retaliatory campaign against Hamas for the group's October 7th attack. In the UK, the Labour Party has withdrawn support for its candidate in the upcoming Rochdale by-election because of anti-Semitic remarks. The Mail on Sunday newspaper reported that Azhar Ali repeated a conspiracy theory about Israel and the October 7th attack. Ali had apologised for what he'd said, calling it deeply offensive, ignorant and false. But Labour's Pat McFadden says that fresh information about other comments he made has now come out. And since we learned about those, uh, Keir Starmer has considered the position and taken the tough but necessary decision to withdraw support from Mr Ali's candidacy. Pat McFadden there. The deadline to replace Azhar Ali has passed with the vote due on the 29th of this month. A full list of the 11 candidates is on the Rochdale Borough Council website. Citigroup is warning that the market needs to price in the risk of future Federal Reserve hikes. Strategists at the bank say traders should now be hedging the risk of a very brief easing cycle, followed by rate increases. The analysis from the lenders economists come as Fed Governor Michelle Bowman says she doesn't see a need to cut at the moment. I think it's too soon to have an expectation that or to, to measure or project when and how much I think we might be lowering the policy rate. I think the progress that we're making on inflation is, um, is very um, positive. 
Michelle Bowman's comments come ahead of today's US inflation printout at 1.30pm London time. The data is expected to show that price rises slowed to 2.9% year on year in January. That will be the first reading below 3% since March 2021. Stock in Arm has risen again, extending a three-day rally. Shares soared by 29%, closing at a record, with the chip designer almost doubling in value thanks to the artificial intelligence boom. Bloomberg's Carol Massa says that the gains are being fuelled by the firm's projections. That was fueled by that revenue forecast that the company put out specifically that far, far exceeded uh, the average of analyst estimates. So it's interesting. There wasn't anything specific today, but investors continuing uh, that three-day jump to more than 93% in arms. So pretty remarkable. Bloomberg's chief national correspondent, Carol Massa there. Well, the jump comes after a blockbuster earnings report which showed that AI spending is boosting sales for Arm and other big beneficiaries in the sector include NVIDIA, whose sales tripled thanks to its AI accelerator chips. It's been just over four years since the UK officially left the European Union. Some economists say the country is still suffering the consequences. Bloomberg's Tiwa Adebayo has the details. Brexit shrank the British economy. That's according to economists at Goldman Sachs, who say the UK has fallen significantly behind similar nations thanks to the decision. Their research found the country's real GDP has underperformed by about 5%. Reduced international trade and fewer migrants are included on a list of side effects that have contributed to the long-term cost of the move, according to the bank. Goldman's conclusion is broadly in line with other estimates about the drawbacks of Brexit. In London, Tiwa Adebayo, Bloomberg Radio. Andrew Bailey says that capital rules are not responsible, though, for the low UK bank valuations. But he remains puzzled as British lenders trade below their book values. The Bank of England governor was giving a speech in the East Midlands, saying that he believes more reforms are needed to protect banks from runs like the one that broke Silicon Valley Bank UK last year. Bailey also dismissed UK recession concerns, saying that any slowdown will be shallow. And finally, clear skies here in London, but in New York, a snowstorm is expected to dump up to 20 centimetres of snow on the city on Tuesday. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has urged residents to stay home and is closing schools for home learning instead. We're strongly encouraging New Yorkers, if you don't have to go out, stay home and please use public transportation. We want to minimise the number of vehicles on the road so that our apparatus and vehicles can actually deal with the removal of snow and make our movement in the city more feasible. Mayor of New York, Eric Adams there, warning New Yorkers not to go out today unless necessary. The storm is likely to disrupt traffic and trains with flight cancellations and delays also expected. Now in a moment we'll bring you more on the ceasefire talks in the Middle East, plus some exclusive Bloomberg analysis of the UK's home building needs as well. But first another story that caught our eye this morning about a case of a super yacht uh, under sanctions and the United States is asking for permission to sell it. Who knew that it would be so expensive to upkeep one of these enormous vessels, but it is proving so costly that the US government wants to get it off its hands even before the court case is over. Yeah, the Amadeus has been impounded in Fiji since April of 2022. It's paying $600,000, the US government, for the upkeep of the boat. They're saying the costs... That's a month. ...are far from modest, far a month, yeah. 
um, and the public shouldn't have to pay them while the court considers whether to order forfeiture of the vessel. The dispute is over the ownership of it. The US government says that it is a Russian billionaire who is under sanctions. That's being disputed in court at the moment, so it's a question of whether or not uh, the vessel, I suppose, can be sold under those rules that were applied to Russian figures after the Russian invasion of Ukraine as well. Um, It's a pretty impressive boat we're talking about, though. Worth some $300 million. It has a helipad um, and six decks. Wow, but I'm just wondering also who's I suppose who's going to come along and snap up a bargain basement super yacht? I don't well, know. Caroline, Anyone's now's your guess? moment. <laughs> there we are. Yeah, look, a very interesting story around sanctions and the consequences, of course, of of what happens after those Russian sanctions. Well, let's get more details on our top story now and this pushed by the United States for a prolonged pause in fighting in Gaza of at least six weeks to allow for the release of more hostages. Our EMEA News Director, Rosalind Matheson, joins us now for more. Morning to you, Ros. What more can you tell us, first of all, about this plan that we've we've heard about from the US President? Well, he didn't give a lot of detail. He just said that he's pushing for this six-week pause. And again, he's been using the word pause versus ceasefire in the fight between Israel and and Hamas in Gaza, and that's to facilitate the release of the remaining Israeli hostages. Um, and that's sort of in line with what we've been hearing from elsewhere. There's been differing proposals for an amount of time, six weeks to a couple of months, even out to four months for a ceasefire. But that's not really the sticking point. The sticking point is some of the conditions that would be um, included in that deal and the two primary ones that they seem to be unable to agree on. What would happen to the Israeli troops in that scenario, do they pull entirely out of the Gaza Strip or to certain areas of the Gaza Strip? And is the ceasefire paving the way for a permanent ceasefire? And is that the goal of any kind of short-term pause in the fighting? And so what we're seeing is perhaps the US is trying to coax both Hamas and Israel, if they can't agree on something like a four-month or three or four-month ceasefire, at least to allow for something of a shorter duration particularly, again, to facilitate the release of those hostages. Mm, Yeah, just remember about 100 hostages were released um, in a week-long truce that ended on the 1st of December. So that's how long ago that that sort of um, pause in fighting took place. There are reports of a meeting um, between the CIA, Mossad, Egyptian and Qatari officials today. Is that a sign that the talks are serious? Why is that important and does it yield results? Well, it's interesting to see that there's another meeting. We know that that's happened several times. We know the CIA and Mossad have been talking regularly throughout. Um, and it's interesting to see, again, the role of uh, the Egyptians and the Qataris in all of this because they're seen potentially by both sides as, as good faith actors in all of it. This is probably more to share, to share intelligence at the moment, particularly around the location of the remaining hostages. We know that Israel says that they managed to get two more of them out uh, yesterday uh, as while they were conducting those strikes on Rafah near the Egyptian border. Um, but we don't know a lot about the rest of them, including their location, um, you know, their status, how healthy they are and so on. You can imagine that this is about sharing that information about their location in readiness for a potential ceasefire deal, which would allow them to kind of get get a hold of these of these hostages very quickly. So it suggests at least again these efforts to keep the lines of communication open to be able to pass messages between Hamas and Israel. Um, but there are those further sticking points more broadly for a deal. 
Ross, Joe Biden also had a strong warning for Israel and, and its offensive on southern Gaza, which is a place where many people were forced to move because of fighting elsewhere in the territory as well. How does that play into these bigger discussions around a ceasefire? Well, that really is is the question. There's this efforts uh, to sort of, to make to try and get a deal done on a ceasefire um, before Israel decides to proceed with a ground offensive uh, into Rafah. Again, that's that very sort of bunched up border area with Egypt, and there are estimates of more than a million people uh, in that area at the moment. A bunch of refugee camps and so on. Israel says that that's also an enclave, obviously, for Hamas. And so the impetus is, you know, this race to try and get an agreement on a pause in the fighting before the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, decides it's time to proceed um, with a ground offensive inside uh, Rafa. Because if, if his troops go into Rafa, then obviously any effort towards a ceasefire is off the table, um, at least for the short term. So, you know, this is, this is why there's a, the, these talks going on in Cairo again today and these frantic efforts to get to this ceasefire. Okay, and a story that we will continue to track for our listeners. Rosalind Matheson, our EMEA News Director, thank you so much for being with us this morning. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, here in the UK, ahead of the two by-elections on Thursday, the country's housing shortage is in the spotlight once again. Exclusive analysis compiled by Bloomberg show the 300,000 new homes per year target promised by the Conservatives in 2019 and later adopted by Labour in the form of one and a half million homes over the next Parliament isn't actually enough. And that's because of a projected surge in population and the long-running deficit in house building. Here to explain it all is our residential real estate reporter, Damien Shepherd. Damien, good to see you this morning. If 300,000 homes per year, new homes, isn't enough, how many do we actually need? Yeah, so of all the things that Labour and the, and the Conservatives disagree on, one thing they do agree on is that 300,000 300, homes a year is needed in the UK to start to solve the housing deficit that we have. Um, it was in the 2019 Conservative Party manifesto to target 300,000 homes a year, um, and the Labour Party, towards the end of last year, advised that 1.5 million homes um, will be built over the next Parliament, which averages 300,000 a year. Um, but we've put some calculations together based on fresh population data that came out earlier this year and all of the missed targets that we've had um, over the previous parliament. And the reality is that we'd actually need almost 400,000 homes a year to make up for the shortfall uh, during the Conservative parliament um, and also the projected surge in population that's coming in the UK. Um, So whoever wins the next general election may have to look at those numbers again um, and factor in that only an average of about 200,000 have been built a year since 2019. So they're going to need to roughly double that. Yeah, I mean, how easy is it to really do that? I mean, you know, and we haven't even included the fact, you know, 
300,000 you know, single unit apartments is not the same as a big house that might house many people. But look, how is the government going to actually try to improve the house building numbers then? Yeah, look, I mean, at least in the short term, it's going to be very difficult. Um, We've seen a massive drop in the number of homes going under construction and fewer homes are being granted planning permission per year. Now, even those with planning um, of those, about 300,000 potential homes are yet to even go on site in the UK because the numbers just aren't adding up for the builders given inflation um, and high rates. So this all really points to things getting even worse on the home building front. Some might say the next government is inheriting a bit of a mess when it comes to the house building situation. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how they can tackle that. Of course, we have those two votes this week in the constituencies of Wellingborough and Kingswood. Are those places where housing is going to be a big issue? Yeah, well, this all came to life in Wellingborough in December last year. Um, A homeless man who was sleeping in the town's park was found dead um, on a night where the temperature dropped to freezing. Now, during the pandemic, the closest homeless shelter in Wellingborough uh, was shut down. Uh, So the closest one now is a 30-minute bus journey away. Um, I had a chat to the mayor um, of Wellingborough who said there's a lot of factory workers in the town who simply can't afford a place to live. Um, And given the lack of supply, um, demand is still high and prices remain elevated. Now, the mayor admits that immigration is also going to be a big vote winner this year um, uh, when it comes to the by-election, and that's because of the link to housing. When we go back to those population projections showing even more people coming into the UK, Um, so housing and immigration are starting to sort of merge together in these small towns as as, as vote winners for politicians and sort of, you know, for people who really, really are getting tired of not being able to afford a property. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.